Cinemata is a platform for social issue filmmakers who are creating content about the Asia Pacific that's built on free and open source software. You know, there's a lot of discussion around the politics of technology, about what YouTube will and will not allow you to publish. That really does give those companies far, far too much power. That means we're not only relying on one or two or three mega players to get our, our information. and welcome to Pretty Good Podcast, Digital Rights in the Asia-Pacific with Engage Media. I'm Red. And I'm Sarah. If you have been following Engage Media's podcast, you will notice that this is not uploaded to YouTube. This is not uploaded to Vimeo. This is actually on cinemata.org and previously video.engagemedia.org. And the topic of our podcast today is this very platform, this unique digital rights respecting video platform uh, that we hope to introduce to you and the issues surrounding it. And so today we'll be joined by a very special guest, the executive director of Engage Media, Andrew Lowenthal, who himself has been steeped in video advocacy for the past 16 years since Engage, and even before that, since Engage Media was founded. And so without further ado, here is our conversation. Hey, Andrew, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi, Sarah. Hi, Red. Nice to be here inside the recording space that is PGP. Tell us more about Engage Media. From the beginnings 15 years ago when you were focused on a video platform to your increased focus on open technology and digital rights to what you are doing today. Sure. So, yeah, we began uh, quite a while ago now. And really the original aim was to build a platform for uh, social issue documentary uh, from around the Asia Pacific. And so that was really the, the initial um objective was to create a space where different documentary and other types of filmmakers could interact with each other through an online platform. In 2005, that was a quite unique idea. YouTube had only just also started up. We didn't we didn't know about YouTube, as, as most people didn't at that time. And we were really, really interested in how do we kind of change the space that we operate within all the types of relationships and communications that happen. So that's not just, um, uh, and I'm speaking here from very much an Australian perspective, um, which had a, a very much a focus on interacting with the US or interacting with the UK and Europe much more than it did with or does still, but increasingly more so interacting with um, Asia. So we were really interested in how do we um, create a kind of shift in terms of how we understand um, where we are as Australians in the region um, that was kind of the, the, the beginning, but it became much more of it in some ways an intra-Asian um, or Asia-Pacific um, initiative uh, that wasn't so much about making bridges between Australia and Asia, more about how do we do that on a kind of region-wide um, level. Civil society and business, sorry, civil society wasn't as good and still isn't as good as, say, business and government at, at interacting with each other across the region. A lot of that is resource, uh, a resource issue, but also it's also a vision issue and just the idea and the interest to even even to do that. So the way we felt that we could interact or build those bridges um, was essentially through online online video because we could 
get these first person stories. We could hear directly from people. It could complement um, a lot of the kind of foreign correspondent model that was um, prevalent and still is very prevalent and, and has a, a, a space and a, and a value, but was very much about, you know, often what people who didn't have as much familiarity with the, the country thought was was going on in that in that country. So we thought we needed a bit more of a mix um, in that in that regard. And so the evolution of that has been that in some ways the online video component of what we were doing um, became a bit less as we entered more into thinking about building networks and doing more digital rights work and doing a lot of training and other things. But Cinemata is really the kind of looping back to very much the original objective um, of engaged media from those many, many years ago. And you just introed exactly what we, the reason that you're here with us today. So for our listeners and our viewers, so Engage Media has just recently launched Cinemata, a platform for social and environmental films about the Asia Pacific. So it's very much within the roots of Engage Media, but also is a reflection of our expanding focus. So Andrew, could you tell us a bit more about this platform? Sure. And maybe even before that, I should look back and, and better answer, <laughs> answer Red's question, which was also what is engaged media? I'm sure people who have tuned in beforehand have, have heard Sarah and Red um, explain what engaged media is. Um, but for those who are newer, um, and uh, I think our versions are fairly similar, they should be, um, it's probably uh, also good to, to hear. Um, I mean, we're a nonprofit that uh, support social and environmental um, advocates around the Asia Pacific do their work more effectively, principally through the use of um, film, media, and, and other technologies. Um, so we're very interested in how we kind of build these cross-boundary or trans-regional networks between different people to increase um, their advocacy and make it more effective what we can learn from each other, what types of um, relationships can come from that, the different types of perspectives that emerge um, when you're not focused just on a purely national, um, from do, doing your advocacy from a purely national um, perspective, which we thought was very much, you know, the, the way the world was heading given the internet and, and well, things have changed now because of Corona, uh, but we're very interested in those types of interactions and what can emerge from them in terms of um, how we can all do our work better to strengthen society around, strengthen civil society, sorry, around the kind of various issues of concern that we have, whether that's um, freedom of expression, whether that's um, uh, climate change or a whole host of different issues. Cinemata is a platform for um, social issue filmmakers um, who are creating content about the Asia Pacific. Uh, so we say about because not everyone who is um, making that, that type of content is from the Asia Pacific, although the vast majority of the content that you'll find up on Cinemata very much is also a showcase of Asia Pacific filmmakers. And there's a huge amount of incredible filmmaking going on in the Asia Pacific. And obviously there are other platforms and forums that are doing that or film film festivals, but there's not really another one that is um, focused specifically on content that engages heavily with kind of social issues. And so those are some of the things that I was talking about before, could be freedom of expression, could be a whole host of different environmental issues, human rights issues, issues around democracy. Um, there's a lot of filmmaking going, a lot of very, very important storytelling that is happening, but it doesn't get 
um, the profile that it deserves. Um, and so Cinemata is really a kind of uh, way to boost the signal um, of, of really important filmmakers focused on very important issues. And this isn't the first time that uh, Engage Media has launched a platform. So for longtime followers of Engage Media, we did have Clue Me uh, some 12, what do you say, 12, 13 years ago. And then we also, earlier uh, in 2020, was also the beginnings of Cinemata. And it did not look yet how it does today. But I bring up these old platforms because I wanted to ask you, Andrew, what is the difference between Cinemata and all the previous, and the previous platforms that Engage Media has launched? So I think the probably the biggest difference is just the kind of upgrade of the the technology and the and the kind of UI and UX um, of the of the platform. So I mean, as I said, the very first project of Engage Media was to build this open source um, platform for video distribution, which sat at engagemedia.org, and that was kind of our full identity was that platform. But that, as I said, also so many other projects emerged over the coming kind of decade and, and more that that website didn't really represent what we were doing. And also the software was getting a bit old and, and creaky because it had been around for 15 plus years. So it was uh, very much in need of, of an upgrade. So um, essentially the, the difference I would say technologically is just that it, it works much, much better. It's very fast, it's very smooth experience. It looks uh, much prettier. Uh, and I think we're already seeing quite a lot of response from different filmmakers um, and and um, even very large cultural institutions like the the Philippine Center for um, sorry the Cultural Center of the Philippines who are about to partner with um, on on releasing and, and helping to circulate a whole range of their films as well. So I think people will find it a very lovely home to use for their content. And the other really important thing that we point that we've been emphasizing around the platform is that it's built on free and open source software. And so that at this time when, you know, there's a lot of discussion around the politics of technology, about what YouTube will and will not allow you to publish. Um, we can't put all our eggs in one basket in terms of our media distribution because that really does give those companies far, far too much power uh, in the space when you have a much more kind of diverse, um, media sphere that means we're not only relying on one or two or three mega players uh for to, to get our our information essentially obviously there are smaller alternatives out there um and we would essentially be one of those smaller alternatives but we do really do want a very very um large alternate ecosystem of alternative technology to really it's one of the the ways that you defend online freedom of expression so you started to touch on the problems with YouTube. And I will rewind uh, 15 years back when YouTube first launched. We were very excited as advocates um, to find this technology that could help us do advocacy. And we thought it was free. We thought we weren't risking our work and our lives, our privacy back then. How, how did that change? How did the, the story change where YouTube and Vimeo and Facebook and all of these big platforms, instead of helping advocates get their message out, is increasingly threatening their digital rights? You know, it's interesting because at the start, in the kind of, I remember going to events in 2006 and 7 and 8, and the problem there was 
the the kind of censorship or blocking of different content was actually very much around progressive content that that people couldn't get up on on YouTube and would have problems um, with. And so there was a kind of push from um, more progressive spaces to create our own our own technologies. That's a little bit different now in that actually the the more of the censorship that happens, or at least equal potentially, someone out there's got the data, is actually from both kind of sides of the political spectrum in terms of the content that gets taken down. That's also why you see, um, you know, uh, in some ways a, a repeat 15 years on of what people on in the on the progressive spectrum we're doing now doing on the right where people on the right are going off and creating their own alternative platforms because they're feeling that the, the platforms are biased now biased against them but at the start we felt that they were biased against um, um, progressives in that sense so we're very interested in creating those other spaces I mean I think the other issue was just around um, data and privacy and monetization where YouTube wasn't really paying compensation. A lot of that has also um, changed now. Um, but it was also about kind of trying to make a curated collection of content that might have more of an impact if it was in a its own kind of niche space. So we never said to people, don't upload on YouTube. We just said, look, if you're going to do it there, these are the, some of the things you should be aware of. These are some of the limitations of the platform. And these are some advantages of putting your content either solely or, uh, you know, or as one of the spaces in which you do your distribution. Um, I, I mean, I think that the, what has also changed now, though, is in some ways there are actually less players. Um, that, well, there may well be more players, but the actual audience share is so much less. Obviously, YouTube is now owned by Google as well. Um, so that means there are kind of these huge monopolies uh, or quasi-monopolies -monopoly, that are controlling um, a, a, a large amount of what people are seeing, or maybe it's more that they're controlling the, where they're directed, because obviously people can still publish their content on, on niche platforms in, in different spaces, but it's kind of the directing and the massaging of what you can and cannot um, be looking at that is um, really the huge influencing power of something like a YouTube or a, or a Facebook or a, a Twitter. And so speaking about all that, I wanted to segue back into Cinemata because we were talking earlier about the advantages of having a curated platform that's dedicated to the Asia-Pacific stories that may be buried in on these bigger platforms and also uh, could you tell us more about how exactly Cinemata protects its users and the filmmakers who want to upload their works as compared to other platforms like YouTube, Vimeo, and so on? The main difference really is that the only data we collect is some pretty basic um, kind of statistics in terms of just knowing how many users come to the, the site each day, very basic inf information about the country they're from and you know essentially what they clicked around on. Other than that, we don't collect very much data at all on the users. So we're not kind of harvesting uh, the data to sell to marketing um, companies. We're not really taking any more than the absolute um, necessary, which I think is important because part of the problem with the larger platforms is just how much uh, the data they're collecting on each and every one of us constantly, how they're using that for ad targeting and how they can also use that for less, well, I was going to say less noble, but advertising is already not the most noble um, endeavor. Um, 
but you know political influence um and other kind of tracking influences that that i think can um, be have quite damaging um results for democracy as well so there's very much a double-edged sword in terms of great we've opened up the space for so that a huge number of people can now publish their ideas and um and content but we've also kind of said but we're also going to track you all over the internet and know you know almost everything that you're doing while you are online so there's a kind of empowering start and a very disempowering well we're not call it the finish but it, because i hope it's not the end and that's also where we evolved a lot of engaged media's work is that at the start in 2005 six, seven, that level of tracking was just not the the kind of prevalent mode of how you know big companies were monetizing um, or making money on online and then as things became more and more data driven they became more and more focused on tracking what people were doing uh, so we also as engaged media shifted our approach because we thought originally we're doing the sell of like oh put your content on the internet it'll be great we'll get all these voices out there that have been ignored or underheard and then it started to be like well maybe we've actually brought you into a little bit of a kind of uh honey trap so that now you're in here actually people know all your political affiliate affiliations they know who all your friends are um they know what you like to eat they know um where you've been um, and that's a little bit, well, it's actually quite, quite dangerous for democracy when you don't have a certain amount of privacy. There's, there's a balance between those two things, um, especially as if people then become afraid to, you know, express their ideas or to participate, um, there's a kind of chilling effect that can happen. And that, I think that can happen across the political spectrum as well. It's not just, initially it was very much a concern for people, um, on the left, but I think now it's kind of more generalized societal concern. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, what you mentioned, where uh, before it was the progressive people who felt that they were being censored, and lately with the shift to more progressive or liberal ideologies, people on the right feel that they are being censored. And I, I want to go to the topic of misinformation. Um, open technology is being used by these. Um, some bad actors who are actually uh, being censored because they've been uploading conspiracy theories and uh, anti-scientific information, information that's meant to incite violence against minorities and so on. Um, so open technology is seen as this safe space for them to spread their message, while the big platforms, although it is a honey trap, is increasingly becoming a liberal, sanitized uh, honey trap. So how do you... Uh, think about the balance, the cost benefit of, of the situation that's going on right now. Yeah, I mean, it's very challenging. There aren't easy answers. I think people are reaching for it, very easy answers and quick fixes to things that are actually very, very complicated. Um, I mean, this this discussion has been around for a long time in Tor, the, which is a kind of an you know, anonymous, anonymous browsing um, platform. Well, it's a very simple, simplified version. At the start was always a concern there that it was used by drug dealers or it might be used by you know sexual predators or might do all manner of different things that were supporting you know um aims and activities that people didn't want to support at the same time it was also supporting you know human rights activists in iran or saudi arabia or um 
you know, any anywhere where, or China, anywhere where, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of expression were very, very heavily curtailed, people had to make a, a, a decision essentially of, well, look, we can't, you not, you cannot solve every single problem all at once. What is the cost benefit of of this? And I mean, to, you know, essentially, uh, Tor obviously exists. Tor is actually even very well funded by the US State Department, um, uh, among other um, uh, funders. Um, and so people made that made that balanced um, or balanced decision, or had to kind of weigh weigh things up. Um, so that's that's the kind of ongoing challenge. I think now um, the the people who have kind of been leaving and starting new platforms um, in the past they would have been yeah more progressives. Now you have the people setting up Gab or Parler or other types of spaces that, and, and actually looking and being interested in these alternative technologies and and open technology actually being more from the right, which is quite an interesting shift and change uh, in terms of this kind of advocacy around alternative um, platforms. So uh, it's, it's uh, something tells you something about what's going on um, in the world that what's changed in that yes, so um, Silicon Valley tends to be much, much more um, liberal. Um, there are obviously some very good things about that, but that but kind of monopolistic ideologies can also become quite dangerous. And I think the the recent discussion around um, or Facebook's recent reversal of um, them banning, you know, uh, conversation or uh, around the um, lab accident theory in uh, around coronavirus is kind of quite an indication of where it can go wrong. That even though. Uh, and that was really people on the progressive side who were advocating for, you know, closing down that kind of what they saw as a misinformation loophole, despite actually a lot of very credible um, people discussing it. I'm not kind of mentioning this in the sense that I am necessarily an advocate for this theory, but I think what I'm an advocate for is, you know, free, you know, if we're going to be advocates for free expression, um, then we need to to do that. Um, in a very principled way, and it's not just for the people that we that we like. Um, if we like to hear what they're saying, it has to be much, much more uh, broad than that. As a as a principle, or things can really start kind of collapsing on themselves. And I think the the kind of lab accident issue is kind of a, a really big case in point in terms of how, in the pursuit of managing or squashing dis miss or disinformation, you can actually end up really tying yourselves in knots and actually be part of uh, misinformation uh, itself because you've essentially ruled out a line of inquiry that people should legitimately be able to pursue regardless of whether or not it's true or not. That's the, the whole point of having that kind of free, that space for free inquiry. I'm just wondering now, uh, where a lot of the people who, are, who want to have these conversations, a lot of them are still in a way stuck in the bigger platforms because that's where the people are. And so what do you think about the thought that um, while a lot of video advocates and progressives are creating their platforms, I mean, that's also why we have Cinemata, how then do we reconcile the fact that we also still have to, again, in a way, if we want to reach more people, engage with those who are still primarily operating in these platforms where we have less control of, I mean, what's being censored and not. So where, where's the balance there? 
Yeah, I mean, and, and as both of you will know, um, we have a lot of these conversations inside uh, engaged media. It's like, what is the right level of engagement with those larger platforms so that we're not, you know, promoting them and sending a signal that, you know, of endorsement, essentially, but we're also not cutting ourselves off from, you know, having uh, some significant sized audience. And it very, is very, very um, difficult. I mean, we've gone for an approach that I think we talked about um, Facebook and Twitter being outposts rather than our kind of central hub for content. So we want to kind of keep engaging in them, but we don't want to kind of overinvest in them to the point that it's essentially seen as an endorsement and that we're also not focusing energy on building those alternative platforms. So I guess we kind of found this in-between um, space or in-between compromise about how we were going to, to do that. So you will see a certain amount of social media work from us on Facebook and, and Twitter, but you also see work on Mastodon and you'll also see obviously platforms like Cinemata, which are completely free and open source. But as you said, Sarah, one of the big dif difficulties is just getting attention um, these days. And it's not, um, and, and for the most part, the, the, there are quasi-monopolies on attention or at least very, very substantial gatekeepers in terms of how you can get that, get that attention out there. I think new and models will emerge. Um, I think actually the Twitters and the Facebooks may a little bit be shooting themselves in the foot and undermining themselves by becoming kind of quite openly partisan. Um, and that that may well bode badly for their business models. Not that I want them to make their decisions solely based on what's going to make them money, but um, it is quite clear that it's becoming, you know, uh, different platforms are essentially built around different politics rather than having this kind of overarching um, few big platforms. That might not actually be a bad thing uh, in some ways, but it's happened in a way that maybe people hadn't quite um, anticipated. But maybe that gives people enough motivation. There have obviously been dozens of attempts over the years to get alternatives to things like Facebook going, like Diaspora and others. I'm trying to remember the other one that, that came up three or four years ago that had a big rush um, of, of energy around it, but then then died. Um, but in some ways, actually, what what's, has enabled other platforms to, to emerge is this political desire for them. And again, for the most part, they've been um, more towards the right, like the parlors and the and the gabs. It'd be interesting, obviously, to see from our side, we consider cinema to be very much, or is very much focused on progressive issues. Um, so we would also like to open up that the space on the other side for more kind of alternative platforms um, to discuss a lot of very important and critical issues. But to do it in a way that we would hope that is, um, I mean, we're a smaller and more niche platform. So I think, we're more defined about what we will and will not kind of host, but we're also not trying to pretend that we are the whole internet um, either. We're just one kind of contribution um, to 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 the web that we hope um, enhances the information that is available to them um, that contributes to something larger, 
chiefly kind of a kind of strengthening of civil society and good debate and ideas sharing on um, critical social and environmental issues. Somewhere in the world, hopefully in the Asia Pacific, there's a group of idealistic developers who are thinking of setting up an open space, uh, open source platform that would rival YouTube and Vimeo and even Cinemata. Um, so, what would you give these uh, individuals as advice, um, having gone through this journey of 15 years working on open tech? And um, in general, yeah, what is the might be thinking about setting something up. Yeah, yeah. And and tell us about the state of open source development. Like, what is the funding like? Like, what, what are these individuals who are looking into developing such an open source platform in for? Yeah. Well, I think, just to go back, I think one thing that's quite interesting is how this can come out of the Asia Pacific and doesn't also have to come out of Europe or, or the US. I think still there's a, an idea that, oh, we're going to have to wait for, for people in North America or Europe to kind of come up with something. Whereas I think what I think is, is also quite unique about Cinemata and the other work that we're able to do at Engage Media is that it's coming out of the Asia Pacific. Um, and that's one of also really critical to our mission in terms of um, enlarging and diversifying the, the kind of debates and the ideas that circulate around digital rights issues um, to make them less North American and European. Um, centric um what would i say to budding developers or people who are looking at creating these spaces i mean i think it's in technologically it does seem increasingly easy um i mean the amount of development we needed to do for cinemata compared to what we did for our previous video site was like much much less the kind of component parts uh are, are, are kind of there um, a lot more kind of development work has, has happened. I mean, that would was kind of a natural profession because we started very early on in 2005. There wasn't uh, that much interest around this this um, area and not as much work had been done. Uh, and there's still definitely a big problem in funding. Um, it's interesting that in some ways around 2005, six, seven, it was easy for, easier for us to get money for kind of open source technology projects and I felt it was in the kind of 14, 15, 16, 17 kind of period. I think as, because there was there was this whole space where um, people were very pro Facebook, very pro YouTube, really not interested in questioning them, really saw them as advantageous for civil society and the advocacy work that they were doing. And I mean, you can, go back and find an article from me in 2007 where I was you know, trying to argue against that, that we shouldn't kind of overly invest in these platforms, um, that there are some serious kind of downsides to them and we should be more critical of them. And I mean, that was not something that was um, people were particularly interested in having a conversation around in most of the kind of progressive civil society spaces, I'd say until three or four years ago. In some ways, I think until Trump, until Trump, um, happened and then Cambridge Analytica, etc. Even the Snowden what Snowden revealed about the NSA didn't really seem to shift um the kind of civil society more broadly about what the downsides uh to these things were. I think that the good thing now is that there is a lot more interest in it. Like you know Facebook and Google are front page stories constantly in uh, in media outlets. They are the, the are they are the story, but that was not really the case, you know, four, five, six, seven 
certainly 10 years ago. So the level of social awareness around it is, is much, much higher. But to go back to your question of the, you know, what to advise or think about. I mean, I think that the issue is that it is really possible. In fact, it's very important to start. I think we've come, we have a, a kind of internet ecosphere that is um, bec become very constrained. Um, it was certainly not the utopia that people were envision envisioning in the early 2000s or, uh, or earlier. It's become a much more dystopian space um, and in some ways it's actually, you know, if you kind of go back to the John Perry Barlow, you know, um, what was it, declaration? Um, I'm forgetting the name of the exact, the exact manifesto, the declaration of kind of the freedom of cyberspace. You'll have to kind of um, excuse my not remembering the title. It was very much about, you know, not having huge amounts of government and corporate control over the internet, I think that's largely or almost completely failed as a as a vision and a project as um, essentially government and tech monopolies have become closer and closer. I think you even see that more now. I mean, most of Silicon Valley's funding goes to the Democratic Party. Um, they're now have taken their chief rival off Facebook. And again, I say that not being a, a fan of Donald Trump, but I think it does kind of start becoming, you know, becoming a bit dangerous and certainly worthy of kind of critique and an investigation if this is a good a good thing or not. This level of power is essentially, this is far too much power. There just shouldn't be, be to my mind, companies that should have that much power over the, dis the discussion and the debate and, and the politics. And I mean, even people like Angela Merkel and the Mexican president agree in the sense that, you know, at the end of the day, the sovereign is the person that the people has, have elected, it's not Mark Zuckerberg, no matter, you know, how despicable the sovereign might be. So, you know, that's a discussion um, as well. That's probably not the most popular opinion. Well, in some circles, not, but it's certainly, um, I'm lining up with some pretty middle of the road centrists and center-leftists in the Mexican and, and President and Angela Merkel. Um, I think the key thing, though, is, is that people really should be and I think they are diving in and building these other technologies and not just being satisfied with what, what is currently out there. And I think in the Asia Pacific, there's a huge amount of talent. It's obviously most, uh, well, a, a large number of um, countries and societies in Asia are very, very technologically savvy. They've tended to be a little bit more um, technology consumers than producers when compared to say the US and Europe obviously that that's not so much the case in in China but I think it is kind of more the case in Southeast Asia but I think that's also um, changing quite a lot as more and more kind of uh, tech savvy people come into the into the space and start building their own um, work I mean things like grab and gojek and I'm not going to say them to promote them I think they have their own challenges, but they're also quite amazing um, initiatives in terms of, you know, really large scale alternatives to the Ubers and the other things that came out of Indonesia and and Malaysia as well, right, which I think shows that the, the same level of tech savvy also does exist um, in the region. And so I would expect that that will continue, whether or not there's the regulation and oversight to make sure that that tech is, you know, 
protects people's privacies and is prior privacy and is properly secure is going to be another question and that's a very big ask excuse me that's a very big ask of civil society essentially to to um try and make that happen when in some ways you also have less governments that are less responsive to civil society demands in most parts of Southeast Asia. In fact, unfortunately have um, almost everywhere um, a significant regression um, in extreme extreme cases, Myanmar, but you know, across, across the region apart from perhaps East Timor, everywhere else has has been going backwards quite significantly over the past several years and that's only been accelerated under COVID. Yeah, lots of um, food for thought there and we could that's a almost an entirely different topic actually talking about the um, all the those that you mentioned but I wanted to bring it back as we wrap up this podcast on the platform Cinemata and also the role of video activism and engage media's deep history there so Red asked you about what your would your message be to open tech uh, developers and I wanted to ask you what about now what would you tell those especially in the Asia-Pacific, filmmakers or video content producers who maybe are, they may, we may not be creating the technologies, but we are in a way more increasingly creating our own stories and having the means to shoot um, film from our perspectives and having a bigger opportunity to uh, broadcast it to a wider um, uh, audience. And so how do you, what do you want to tell these individuals who we hope will be seeing cinemata as an ally in that storytelling mm. sure i and i think the thing is to we would love to see your stories on on cinemata uh and to really i think it's something that we need to co-create with the filmmaking community and or anyone who's interested in in making video which is quite a lot of people these these days it's not a space that can kind of be, just be delivered by us to other people. And we've certainly been working closely with other actors in the in the region to get their advice and input along the way um, in terms of what, what kind of platform this should be and what it should, should look like. Um, and I think one of the key differences in terms of what we can do that say YouTube doesn't do is that we will work with you. So if you have a great film, about an important issue that you want to get out there, um, we quite often can't do it with everyone. We'll, you know, help promote that through our social media channels, help connect that to um, advocacy organizations that are working around the issue that the film covers and really try to have it make a contribution to um, expanding and strengthening civil society, essentially, to, so that it has some kind of impact around the issue that it's actually uh covering we would also really like it to be a space for knowledge sharing so in and kind of um peer-to-peer -peer interaction and 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 networking community building so it's not just that it's this platform that you go to and upload your content and 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 don't come back but it's a space where you actually can see all oh, right this is this is some of the amazing filmmakers in the philippines or this is some of the great content that's coming from malaysia or um this is a playlist that, um, for example, that we've been doing in Myanmar to kind of really highlight um, issues around the, the coup or background um, issues. So I think 
there's a lot of potential there to look at um, creating different types of spaces that aren't just, um, I, I know in some ways it's kind of an empty bucket that gets filled. I think a lot of YouTube is um, just that. It doesn't have a kind of flavor to it, which is fine. It's kind of, it should be a kind of neutral platform. And so that's, that's good. We want those kind of neutral platforms to exist. And Cinemata is a curated platform that has a particular um, bent uh, to it. We're very, obviously, we're very um, open about what our bent is and what kind of content we want. We don't accept all all content, but again, we're not trying to be the kind of be all and end all for, for all content either. Um, so I think we really want people to not just upload, but kind of engage to be cliched um, with the content itself, become part of these discourse channels, for example, that we have as well, where people can kind of come in and discuss around the films to connect that content out to um, civil society and social change actors around the region, but also internationally. I think one of the quite exciting things is, again, um, looping into Engage Media's mission about kind of raising the profile of Asia Pacific actors um, and kind of having them be a much bigger part of the conversation. Cinemata is very much part of that mission because it's showcasing really great filmmakers who are making, who's telling very important stories. So I don't think get anywhere near as much attention because they have a lot less resources. But um, as you know, people do in in you know North America and Europe. So if there's a kind of push towards, you know, a more diverse range of of voices out there, then that should be not just those diverse voices inside the US and Europe. Those they should also be very much and potentially even more so those, um, you know, in the Asia Pacific and other regions that generally have uh, been uh, overlooked much more. Thank you. Um, all sounds very exciting. Can you tell us about the near future of Cinemata? You mentioned the Cultural Center of the Philippines uh, the, and the partnership there. Um, what other plans do you have for Cinemata and how can people be following uh, Cinemata's um, updates and progress? So we have a newsletter, um, which you can <laughs> sign up to uh, from from cinemata.org. So we encourage people to do that. That's one way to stay up to date. You can also follow individual filmmakers as well. There are RSS feeds for filmmakers and for the various video um, topics and, and categories um, that exist. Um, so we're also kind of very active in pursuing a large number of partnerships. As you just mentioned, we had the one with uh, the Cultural Center of the, the Philippines. We're looking very much to do a lot more of those. We're also partnering with the um, film festival at the moment that is focused on the coup and the democracy movement in Myanmar. But And we're looking to very much do those types of things very, very regularly and really build out this database of about 5,000 films to you know, 10, 20,000 over the coming years and really have it be a... Um, strong, strong hub for people to come and find great content about critical social issues in the Asia Pacific. So stay tuned. There will be um, a wide range of promotion. I think we have a launch um, uh, coming up too, a kind of larger launch or, or forums and sessions that we'll be doing. And, and again, we really want it to be a kind of in some ways a campfire around which the community of filmmakers and civil society in the Asia Pacific Gather. Thank you, Andrew, for sharing with us your time and your thoughts on 
open technology and how this relates to video advocacy. So everything that Andrew has mentioned will be linked on engagemedia.org slash podcast. So thank you, Andrew, for joining us and till the next episode. at Engage Media always talk about digital rights and the importance of using platforms that respect it. But unfortunately, we still have to use platforms like Facebook and Twitter to do promotion. Thankfully, when it comes to video, we have the platform Cinemata that we have made and we have used that. All of our videos are on Cinemata. It's the main platform that we support. And in a time when the ecosystem of software is dominated by big tech platforms. Outfits like Cinemata and other such uh, open source technology is very important uh, because these are the platforms that not only respect digital rights, but allow different voices to flourish. And as mentioned earlier in the podcast, we want Cinemata to be seen as an ally by filmmakers, video collectives, and just in general, progressive change makers in the Asia Pacific who want a space for their stories to be told, especially the stories of those in marginalized communities. And finding these spaces and protecting these spaces is very much important. We actually talked about this in a previous podcast episode with Bishaka Data. You can check that out. And as always, you can find the video version of Pretty Good Podcast on cinemata.org. More information can also be found on engagemedia.org slash podcast. And so, till the next episode, and we hope we see you on Cinemata. Bye!